McNamara with What's New in Adaptive Physical Education. I'm Zooming with Dr. Sean Healy. It's Dr. Sean Healy, who is at the School of Nursing, Psychotherapy, and Community Health at Dublin City University in the great city of Dublin, Ireland. I'd love to come visit. Who's a former uh, you know, mentor of mine and uh, also a collaborator and yeah, a whole bunch of uh, great stuff with Sean always happening. So how are you doing, Sean? Doing very well, Scott. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah thank you for coming on. And we're here to talk a little bit about his article. What's the article name? I had it. It's called The Gatekeepers to Fitness, a correspondence study to examine disabling practices among fitness center personnel. Sound better coming from your, with your accent. So <laughs> we'll keep it in that way. Yeah, um, it was published in uh, the Adaptive Physical Activity Quarterly. Wonderful. So we're here to talk about this article. I found it to be a very interesting article method, like your methods toward to, to what you did, and then also just what you captured in it too. So both things I just found to be very, very interesting. So before we get into all that, and you've been on the show a few times, but really briefly, if you could give me a two minute kind of summary of who Sean is and your background uh, and adapted physical activity. Yeah, absolutely. So I am originally from Ireland. But most of my education was abroad and most of my academic career was abroad. I did a master's in adapted physical activity in Belgium. Um, And soon after, I went to University of Virginia, where I did my PhD under the supervision of Dr. Block and working with Lou Kelly there as well. I then spent two years in Humboldt State University working with their AP program and their AP master's program. And then I went to University of Delaware, where I worked for three years four years uh, as an assistant professor uh, focusing on adapted physical activity and like you said Scott just last July 2021 I made the move back to um, Ireland um, via Dublin City University so I've kind of made this loop around the world well around the western world with my uh, education and academic career Um, yeah mainly my research would focus on broadly speaking physical activity and sedentary behavior among people with autism and intellectual disability. Um, I do a mix of some quantitative and qualitative approaches. And um, my intervention work I would have done would mainly focuses, focused on kind of web-based interventions often involving parents. So this focus of this paper was a little bit of a step outside my comfort zone. Um, but I thought this would be a nice way to apply this new methodology, which hasn't been yet used in our field. Um, and so that's why, you know, so this was a bit outside my norm, we will say, but I think that's nice to do as well as a researcher now and again. You know, it's, it's been a common conversation we've had on this show, at least when we get into the research aspect, we're not always talking about research on here, but when we do, we kind of talk, um, I've said it now several times in the last like year and a half on the show about in APE, we often do make a pancake because there's so much, or APA, we make that pancake effect and we're doing surface level research to some degree, which is obviously, there's problems with that, right? So we're never getting into the depth, but there's so much to do. Uh, and there's so few of us that are active researchers, right? So there's this, you know, there, there's this give and take with that, right? Because, you know, it's great to only focus in on that, like one or two areas that you, you feel like you're an expert in. But the reality is, is there's so many areas that literally have little to no research in in our area that could actually benefit people you know like 
when's the last time you saw something on research around, you know, adaptive physical activity, and muscular dystrophy? It's like, doesn't yeah, exist, yeah. right? No, no like, so yeah, I mean, it, it's hard, like, you know? Do we want to put the microscope over the whole field and get a real, you know, 30,000 foot view? So I guess not a microscope. Or do we want to put the actual microscope on a few? Telescope versus microscope, right? Yeah, that, that's a better analogy. Um, and actually get a kind of an in-depth understanding of certain aspects of our field. And yeah, um, hard to know, but I think we, we need a mixture of both. You know? I think so too. And I think it's great when I, I consider myself doing, trying to do this too, where I'm trying to do some things that are outside of it to a learn skills, but also gain a broader perspective. But it's always good for us as researchers to really kind of hone in on one, two, maybe three areas, um, yeah. you know, but it, it's, our field is unique in how many people are actually active researchers in it, right? So, yeah. And it can be difficult also because it is always tempting, I suppose, especially when you have some level of um, security in your academic post to, to take a risk and try something new. And that's, I think that's important as well for us to stay kind of enthusiastic about our research. While, you know, those first few years, maybe you're, you're working to get tenure, it kind of makes sense to take the real small, safe step, you mm-hmm. know, but, I do think there comes a time when I think we should take some risks with our research and yeah, in our career, and we can learn a lot from that. And some will work and provide new, maybe innovative or unique insights and some will fail. And I think that's not a bad thing for a researcher to fail now and again. No, I, pushing the envelope. I agree with you because I think there is a lot of, there is almost safe research to do, right? Versus like, yeah stuff that's outside of the box right that's either could be controversial or not lead to the publication that you yes you yeah. want right so yeah i think those are great great points talking more about this project um before yes. we get into the to the actual methodology because i think that is a, a big area because it's really interesting um this focused on the fitness industry uh and disability and barriers and sure, before sure. we get into you know the hows and what you found why did you choose kind of that, that area of fitness barriers and disability? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, as I'm sure you and all of your listeners would be well aware, there is great disparities in the physical activity levels of adults with disabilities, very broadly speaking. And so why I chose the fitness centers then is because there is so much data supporting the effect of having fitness centers in your locality you know we see that the density of fitness centers in one's community is low is um very strongly associated with physical activity levels with level of obesity and other chronic conditions so they are a very common setting for adults to be physically active and so to try to contribute to understanding why some adults with disabilities are less active than adults without disabilities I thought the fitness center is a nice kind of first place to look. Let's look at the barriers they might face in these settings. And we have a whole host of data. There's a very strong literature base on barriers uh, facing people with physical and intellectual and sensory disabilities in fitness centers. But what what kind of struck me was that we have great data on the environmental barriers in these settings. You know, people have gone in with various instruments. They've measured the doors. They've measured the space around the equipment. They've, you know, done all these physical measurements to clearly identify physical barriers. And that's really valuable research because 
it allows the managers, the owners of fitness centers to make these physical adjustments to the environment. We also have a quite a bit of qualitative data from people with disabilities, from uh, fitness center personnel, personal trainers, you know, you name it, they're probably uh, at least a, a subsample of them have been interviewed about how they perceive or barriers they perceive to be um, facing people with disabilities. And that has given us a nice insight as well. And people have talked about the, the, the environmental barriers people have observed, but they've also spoken a bit about social barriers saying, you know, I don't feel like the, the fitness interpersonnel welcome me, that they were knowledgeable about how to provide me with personal training services, etc. Um, so again, quite a relatively, you know, large base of evidence there, all qualitative data. And one thing we know, especially we know is that what we say is kind of often poorly correlated with how we actually behave. So if you're interviewing a fitness center, personal trainer, you're asking them about perceptions about disability, you're not always going to, as you can imagine, get a very accurate understanding of their perception for various reasons. We, we, we can be biased in how we respond to interviewers, how we respond to surveys, etc. And so I saw this as a, a weakness in the literature. And that's kind of what led me to um, trying to see, can we apply a different methodology to get a full sense of social barriers within fitness centers? Again, we know the environmental barriers, the social barriers are far more tricky to identify because people are, we're, we're all biased, you know, uh, when we are engaged in qualitative research. Yeah, and even, you know, the why of why, those things are happening is, I don't know if you really discern that either, because that is hard, right? Is it, is it um, how they perceive it? Is it, you know, I find time, the lack of time. Absolutely. Experience, you know, all those things come into play of why are these things actually happening, you know? Absolutely. A whole host of reasons why someone might be, have various biases in their, in their responses. But what you mentioned about time there is a good point as well, that, you can imagine if you or I were doing a study of um, social barriers to fitness centers among fitness center personnel, you know, staff members who work in fitness centers, we're going to get responses from people who are interested in the topic, at least, maybe have some expertise in the topic. So again, the data we get from this sample of fitness center, let's say personal trainers, is going to be probably biased towards people who are at least familiar with, with disabilities, um, maybe have experience working with people with disabilities. So again, um, the sampling is also an issue um, which we kind of see in our in our field around, you know, in, interviewing, doing surveys, et cetera, with fit, fitness center stakeholders, we'll call them. So I, I was able to kind of overcome that as well um, with this um, study. Yeah, absolutely. So I can segue in a little bit into, you know, from these, we'll say, issues in the literature on this topic to the actual methodology used. And what actually led me to this methodology was reading about um, the use of audit studies or correspondence studies, as they're, as, they're, as they're also called, in various fields related to employment, related to education, related to various medical services, whereby people have used audit studies and correspondence studies to identify if, dis if um, discrimination is occurring. And I'm happy to give some examples of those types of studies if you want some of the kind of groundbreaking ones. Yeah. 
So, for example, um, you know, you probably have, at least you're aware of, discrimination surrounding race and employment. And some of the groundbreaking studies on this topic that I think are just really irrefutable or provide irrefutable evidence, if I could use that term, are around um, are certain studies that looked at if you send a CV to potential employers and you put a name that is a kind of a white sounding name and they did research to discern white sounding versus more black person sounding names. The individuals who send the CVs with the white sounding name get far greater number of responses than individuals with uh, Hispanic sounding names or black or African-American sounding names. So again, really strong indication that there is clearly discrimination and racism in this case um, going on here. They did similar studies around housing, whereby you know, applicants apply for housing. If you have some indicators in an application that you're from a lower socioeconomic status versus a higher socioeconomic status, your application is um, far less likely to get a response if you're from a lower SES background. So you know, we can look at these various, we could call them stratifiers of inequities um, in a lot of these fields related to economics, uh, education as well, um, healthcare. Yeah, I feel like I went really around there, but I can explain absolutely. the methodology in more detail. And I think I've seen, seen it a few times with gender as well, right? Like gender so, as well, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, 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 so you took this and you applied it to the fitness industry, and um, and if I just so I make sure that I I remember correctly too, you basically sent out you sent out a variety of kind of emails to different fit, different types of fitness centers, right? So you did chains and kind of smaller ones and, and even stuff in between. And you either said, you, I think you asked for things like personal training information or membership and all those types of things. And you would then kind of say, I have either, I think you had a control as an able-bodied person. You had a spinal cord injury, visual impairment and autism. How did I do? Very well. Top class, yeah. No, yeah, that's exactly what I did. I so the, the, that would be the, the 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 kind of classic audit study, correspondent met, correspondence study methodology. You send out an application, an inquiry of sorts, and you vary. It's the an equal message, but you vary one aspect of it to indicate something about the applicant, and then you can view. Okay, what is the kind of responsiveness? Is the typical um, dependent variable. But yeah, Scott, what you said is what I did. I decided to focus on urban fitness centers. So I identified the 10 most densely or um, high population cities in the US. Out of them, I identified, I might get my numbers wrong here, but you know, I, I think it was 80 fitness centers randomly selected from each of these cities, which gave me a sample of 800 fitness centers. So it's a random a random selection of fitness centers in urban areas in the US. And I didn't send 800 emails. And there was two types of an email. One email simply asked, you know, can I join your fitness centers? The other email asked, can I avail of personal training services in your fitness centers? And then there was four, you know, modifications to those two email types. Like you said, one didn't mention disability. One mentioned spinal cord injury one mentioned visual impairment and one mentioned autism. Of course, I could have all, I could have gone for a variety of, let's say impairment or disability types. 
I chose those just because the literature suggests that these are populations that do utilize gyms and fitness centers to a lesser degree than the general population. A, a quick follow-up before we get into the results, because I think your results are very interesting as well. What brought you to kind of focus in on those three specific disabilities? Yeah, um, it was to a large degree, I don't have any great reason. The, the, um, there is data to suggest that these individuals have lower physical activity levels, have lower utilization of gyms, or at least qualitative research from members of these populations suggests that they don't use gyms as much, they face barriers in gyms, et cetera. So there were kind of a few reasons why it made sense to use these disability types, we'll say in my letters. However, I could have gone elsewhere as well. You know, I could have gone, I could have talked about um, people with intellectual disabilities. I could have talked about people with hearing impairments. I kind of had to stop somewhere just because the numbers with this type of study get big really quick. And yeah, so kind of just having a sample of 800 fitness centers whereby, well, although it sounds like a lot, it, it, it doesn't, you don't belong kind of getting to, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it, it's, it's kind of sufficient for four groupings, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, a response rate's not 800 people either. Right. So I totally, well, the, the beauty of this study is that no response kind of is a response. Yeah. You know, because yeah. When my dependent variable, my outcome of interest was whether they responded or not and how they responded. So if they didn't respond to an inquiry, that's significant, you know? And, and I, I read that because it was like a positive negative. And I know you kind of wrote on that too about like how you, how, but how, can you, before we get into the rationale, how did you kind of quantify whether it was a positive response or a negative response? Yeah. Um, I, first of all, I was helped by previous research which would have done similar type of judgment calls on responses, whether it's to applications for jobs, applications for housing, applications for social services. So that kind of helped me to do that. Um, but basically I put together kind of descriptors of here kind of keywords that we would expect in a positive response. Like, and so, so uh, most times it was very, very obvious. It was like, yes, I'll take you on as a, as a, as, as a client, a personal training client. Yes, you can become a member. Here's the application form, you know? So there was a variety of ways that a positive response could be indicated and a negative, um, and a negative um, response could be given, which leaves a bit of subjectivity, you know? Like, as I'm reviewing the response emails, there was a lot of room there for me to be biased and saying, you know what, I think that's actually positive. So to try and overcome that, I actually did two things. First of all, when the emails came back, they were moved to another document without an indicator of whether they came from the control group or one of our experimental groups. And also, as well as me reviewing them, a second reviewer blindly reviewed them as well, you know, to say whether they were positive or negative, to try to reduce the fact that, I guess, the incident incidents of us um, reading an email and kind of being biased about, okay, this is from an experimental group person, so let's be biased towards maybe no, so we'll have an interesting result. So we tried to limit the, the chances of that happening. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, again, very interesting. And I think that type of methodology in our field is right there. You, you did something just by kind of opening people's eyes to something that's that's new, because I had never read anything like that. And I thought it was really interesting. Going to your results, can you provide a brief summary of kind of what you found and, and if you were surprised by anything you found? 
Um, yeah, I can certainly, I, I guess I was surprised in some sense. First of all, the some findings weren't surprising. For example, people with visual impairments, they receive far fewer uh, callbacks or email responses than our control group. And if I hope you don't mind that I actually bring up the figures here just to make sure there was kind of a lot of data in it. So I want to make sure I'm right. It's totally fine. Okay, so we've a variety kind of of results. First of all, people with visual impairments were really seen to be discriminated against from the fitness centers. Um, so just to kind of highlight one or two findings. So 35% of people with visual impairments received just any um, sorry, received um, a positive response versus nearly half of individuals who don't, who did not report having a visual impairment. This was particularly bad from um, personal training requests, whereby only less than one in three, so only 30% of people with, visual with, with a visual impairment received a positive response versus, again, half of people who didn't have any disability. And that was particularly poor from chain fitness centers. So from a chain fitness center, which, um, you know, any, any of the big chain fitness centers, only one in four people with a visual impairment received any response, any email back. And again, from our, um, and only one in five of people with visual impairments from a chain fitness center re received a response versus the emails that were sent that had no indication of disability, whereby one in two people received a response. And the vast majority of them were positive responses. So especially around personal training, but especially around chain fitness centers, very, very low response rate for people with um, visual impairments. Um, just maybe to add one more kind of a result there, which is people with spinal cord injuries was, was another group that did not fare um, as, um, as well as we would hope. So 38% of them received a positive response, again, in comparison to nearly 50% of people without disabilities. And when you look at personal training, again, they fared really poorly. 38%, same actually, received a response versus over half of the group who did not report to have a spinal cord injury. So there were findings that I guess weren't a massive surprise because the qualitative data would suggest this is the case, but I think it provides us really strong evidence that I think is hard to argue against that if you have a visual impairment or if you have a spinal cord injury, if the fitness center are aware of that, for whatever reason, they're less likely to respond and say, yes, you can be a member here, or yes, we can give you personal training services. And maybe later we'll talk about what might be the why underneath these results, but maybe we'll move on to that next. Well, I, I was going to say real quickly about the chains is that I know that Planet Fitness, I think last year had a big lawsuit over uh, disability and not providing access. And I kind of know that because now I didn't know this, but new, uh, Planet Fitness is from New Hampshire. So oh, it's really? like, I didn't know yeah, that. so I didn't know that either, but it's, yeah. they're doing all these initiatives now towards disability because wow. um, they had a massive um, lawsuit. So those, okay. those findings are interesting, um, you know, kind of in, in correspondence with that. And you would think the large chains would be more uniquely prepared to work with. Um, and you would honestly think that I, it's kind of even one in two responses to able-bodied people's a little like, yeah, they need a, well, <laughs> like one reason for the lower response rate overall might be that I used email and web form 
you know, for example, maybe just during the time of the interview, we gave them two weeks to reply, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this is something they get around to once a month, checking that inbox for membership or personal training inquiries. Of course, you could do this type of methodology using phone as well. And you'd have, a, I'm sure you'd have a lot higher response rate for both groups. Um, but that's, as you can imagine, a lot more kind of resource heavy. So yeah, that's kind of of interest maybe by itself that this isn't the best way maybe to make these applications, but nevertheless, you still can compare the actual response rate differences between groups. You know, there's no reason that an email request would be any better for someone who doesn't have a spinal cord injury than someone who does, you know? So, and I'll just kind of skip, I think you're about to hit this, but I was really intrigued with your findings around autism. Yeah. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I just have a summary already. So I'll just kind of say like what I found, sure. what I saw is that autism had the highest levels of positive responses across, across the other disability categories. And I think for a request from about membership, it had even higher levels than able-bodied individuals. Yeah, very small, yes, very, very small. Yeah, but you're right. You're still right. Still larger. Absolutely. Yeah. And very I found true. I found that to be a little no, very surprising. And yeah. um, and and I wanted to, to kind of definitely dive into that of why you think that might have been, especially in comparison to the other disabilities. Yeah. And I suppose one answer is we don't know, you know, we, we could not decipher that or I could not decipher that. But when I was writing the, the discussion for this, and of course, I spent a lot of time thinking about that result, I began to look at the kind of literature surrounding like awareness about disabilities. And that actually autism is a disability or, you know, a neurotypical condition or, you know, that um, people are quite aware of. There's been a lot of awareness kind of campaigns in recent years because of the prevalence of autism a lot of us have a family member or a friend or a colleague classmate etc who has autism so that's one thing that i thought about maybe there is just in general a more positive attitude towards autism you know within our communities now in places that might be a correct understanding of what autism is and an awareness of what autism actually is there may be instances where people think they know what autism is based on a depiction in a film or a movie, you know, and they have a, you know, that is what has led to them having a certain perception about what autism is and what about what an autistic person could do in a gym or not. So it might be just about attitudes might be good across the US, you know, towards autistic adults. What I think probably contributes more strongly to the positive response was the perception of autism as a as a condition that might not interfere as much with something like providing personal training services now i don't think this is accurate but i'm just trying to get into the head of personal trainers and thinking okay autism is a you know involves social and communication deficits and some behavioral traits etc and they might not understand how they could potentially impact on the provision of personal training services so it could be a, maybe an incorrect understanding of autism and the potential challenges and the potential creativity that's needed to give real good personal training services to people with autism so whereas someone might think of a someone with a spinal cord injury and various pictures might jump into their mind of you know them needing to have specialized equipment, which might not be the case for some people with autism. 
them needing to have maybe to be removing some physical barriers like um, maybe doorways or inclusive bathrooms or stairways, etc. Again, that might not be as relevant for someone with autism. So similar for individuals with visual impairments, you know, maybe the people who are the personal trainer thinks visual impairment, I'm not going to know how to instruct them. I don't have the equipment necessary for them, etc. So maybe our fitness uh, center personnel are making judgments about how they can cater for an autistic adult as opposed to an adult with spinal cord injury or an adult with uh, visual impairment. And again, these presumptions are sometimes going to be incorrect. But that's my best guess as to why there was a more favorable response for one grouping as opposed to the others. And just so you know, Sean, you're on a podcast. So in podcasts, we just make inferences like crazy. <laughs> so very different no than caveats needed. Yeah. So we we just like we go crazy and we just, you know, we're we're you know predicting flat earth and yeah. And have, you, like have you any other thoughts yourself, Scott, about about why why that might be the case? You know, that these autistic adults got you know high levels of favorable responses as opposed to people with spinal cord injuries or people with blindness of course when i'm saying people with these conditions these weren't people these were fictitious you yeah know? well i i do think that there's something you know some some of my research now is like around this podcasting stuff which is kind of more broadly in like knowledge translation and public awareness um and all these things and i i think there's been a public campaign for autism that has not, and sometimes to its detriment too, right? So it's not always like, sometimes the, the, the campaign is not always like this, whatever, it, maybe it, it, it shines as rosy color or charity mindset or things, you know, that, that aren't as positive to the community or always frames autism and around a, a, what it looks like, you know, or something like that. So yeah. sometimes even though there's public awareness doesn't always mean it's a doing big favors to it. However, I do think that there's been a tremendous public awareness effort around it compared to other types of disabilities. And again, you know, as you said, that doesn't always mean like, let's, it's all flowers around autism, right? Because I think if I just looked at the results of your paper, I think I could walk away and say, autism's good. Like no, no need to, to do yeah. anything else with that group, right? Um, but I think you brought up like that might mean that there's a misconception of the fitness professionals that they don't need any knowledge or experience to be able to adapt to activities yeah. too. So yeah. if I can just go off no, your point no. there, is that um, a good thing to keep in mind as well is that this was like one point of contact between potential customer of a fitness center and the fitness center person. It's a really important contact point because it is one of the first steps we got engaged in before we joined the gym, you know, we pick up the phone, we email or we go in person and we say, can we be a member or get personal training? So it's a real critical step. And it's encouraging that this study would suggest that people with autism can, if they do make that initial request, they can maybe get over that first step, you know, just like you or I can, Scott, people who don't have autism. However, it, this study that I did gives us no insight about what happens next. What happens when the person physically goes in the door and meets the personal trainer? What happens when they interact with other people within the fitness center? So it's good to kind of keep that in mind too, that it is one point of contact. It's one potential, one potential point at which a barrier can, um, can emerge, but it is just one point in time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
yeah, I think that it's obviously these things get super complex, but you're hitting a, a certain aspect that hasn't been hit. And, and that's yeah. that, that first impression aspect, I think too, right? The first impression it's, it's the gatekeeping, right? It's getting in the doors. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, you know, I think when I've talked to people with disabilities or parents or whomever, and I ask them about joining a fitness club or whatever, I mean, a lot of the response is, is like, you know, it's not for me. It's not, that's not for me. Um, so mm -hmm. I think addressing that initial barrier is a big one, yeah. uh, you know, so I think you're getting at something big, but yeah, I think that autism aspect is very, very interesting. Um, one, one other follow-up before we kind of get into that, like, what do you want to do next or see or the future? Your study focused in on the urban settings. And I think that's in, in big urban settings too, which is very interesting and yeah. good design, but would you foresee or like a major differences if you went suburban, rural, or even just small, like, you know, you went to millions of people yeah, in yeah. urban centers, if you yeah, went to- I, I don't know. And I'm, I'm sure yeah. there is some research out there that could, um, that could kind of give me some idea about that. But, you know, just thinking about Ireland and thinking about our larger cities like Dublin versus, you know, a more, a smaller village like where I was born, where we mm -hmm. actually just recently got a gym. I am, I, uh, maybe, you know, the smaller places, they are maybe more flexible, you know, they typically have more time, you know, it's a quieter gym, so they can be more accommodating, perhaps, I don't know, but also, you know, there may be, a, the, you know, on the flip side, you could say, well, maybe the rural gyms in denserly, more denser populated areas, they might have more customers who do have various disabilities, and so they're more accepting, so I don't know, I think it could go either way. I simply chose the urban centers because it helped me to get a sample that was a little bit more, you know, that I, that I, I had kind of had to exclude one. And if I excluded the urban, it would make um, my, let's say, recruitment very challenging. So I just said, OK, let's just for the first start, let's focus on the urban areas. But yeah, it would be interesting. All right. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, my last kind of final question is like, how do you see either your work going, uh, you know, future work in this, or how do you see the fitness industry kind of um, yeah. trying to wrestle with this, this, uh, these mm -hmm. issues? Yeah, I think there's two kind of, kind of avenues that I, or hopefully other people would like to maybe take based on this paper. And one is just use of this methodology. You know, I remember when I first read about the methodology, it kind of scared me in a way because you're you are actually deceiving your participants, you know, which first of all, I was like, this is never going to get through an IRB. You know, the fact that I'm involved, I am involving 800 fitness centers or you could say 800 people who opened that email in a study unknowns to themselves, you know. So that, I think just using the methodology is scary, but hopefully now that it has been used once in our field it kind of maybe opens the door for it to be used in um, elsewhere. Well, one thing on that, I think, because I did a study like this in my PhD, not, not quite like this, but I, I contacted IEP companies and I didn't need IRB because a company is not a person. So I think that's an important aspect to also say is that when you contact LA Fitness or whatever it is, you're not contacting a person and a company is not a person, which to... Yeah. to Again, push. I know it's a person behind an email. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not a person. It's a company, which is yeah, interesting. Now I, I'm yeah, 
Yeah, interesting. I, I wonder would all IRB committees look at that the same, you know, because whereas, yeah, I email, let's say, LA Fitness. But, you know, there is a chance that I could get an email from Scott McNamara at LA Fitness. So I, I think it's a fine line, you know. Yeah, but it, it is. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I didn't think of it about it like that before. Of course, yeah, when I framed it in my IRB application, you know, I make sure to stress that these are actually going to fitness center emails yeah but i still think there is a level of deception involved because a person is going to spend time doing something that is part of a study their behavior is going to be observed as part of the study which is do they send an email or not but i'm by all means i'm encouraging people to do because i think this deception is worthwhile the findings it can provide us makes it worthwhile and that's why i think we can get these studies this methodology through irb committees because we can make a statement as to why it is providing data that is valuable. With little to no risk to the participants. Correct, yeah, very. that's a massive part of it, of course, because there are ways you could do this study that would you know, cause some risk, but this type of study, very, very low risk, so that also helps, yeah. But anyway, that's one thing I think people can do is more use of this methodology to identify these social barriers, whether it be in schools, whether it be in community sport programs, et cetera. I think there is great value there because we do in our field rely a lot on, on, on interviews, on surveys, et cetera. Um, the second thing I kind of avenue is to try to understand the why behind these findings. Why are fitness center personnel not responding as favorably to people who indicate that they have a disability, be it a, a spinal cord injury or a visual impairment? It could be down to do with knowledge that they feel they're not knowledgeable about working with customers with these conditions and therefore they don't reply. It could be that they have negative attitudes towards these individuals, or it could be that they have knowledge about environmental features within their fitness centers that they say, you know what, he's never going to get up that stairs, therefore I don't reply. So just getting at the why behind the discriminatory behavior, because it's discriminatory regardless of the cause, but I think that's going to be an important next step so that we can actually intervene, you know? And, um, and, and yeah. to bring it to the, the question, not about the research now, but kind of about how do you use history, the fitness industry, kind of dealing with disability in the future? And obviously, again, podcasts, inferences, where we're <laughs> yeah. like, but what, like, what well, would you like to see them do? Yeah, well, you know, I think about... Um, the wonderful instruments that have been used across the country to assess the inclusivity of the physical environment within fitness centers. And this has led to like legislation saying doors must be this wide, taps must be this high, etc. You know, so we have these standards for the physical environment and great change has occurred in, in this um, area across the years. I would love for findings like this to say, well, Let's ensure our people get the education, get the training that they need to be inclusive in their practices for potential customers with disabilities. So I think a lot of it's going to come down to training of fitness center personnel um, that can occur, you know, at a number of levels, including within universities, you know, in our undergraduate programs that are training people who will one day become personal trainers, will manage gyms, you know. So I think the sooner we intervene, the better. But Regardless, we need to be promoting knowledge, skills, positive attitudes amongst people who work in gyms towards people Absolutely. with disabilities. 
Absolutely. Well, Sean, I really appreciate your time. I think this was a riveting conversation and I hope you enjoyed getting to, to talk about your own research. It was great. Thanks. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for being on the show. And-